0: Penny University, a podcast with value. Penny University presents 2019 Our Investigation, Our Truth. What happened to the Granite Mountain Interagency Hotshots? A mother determined and almost broken, fulfilling a promise to her son lost. A friend lost in contradictions between the crew he knows and the crew that was distorted. What happened in Yarnell, Arizona at the end of June 2013? <laughs>
1: Episode 6 Hiking the Path.
0: Hello, I'm Doug Harwood. I uh, work for Prescott Fire Department. I'm a firefighter in Prescott, and I worked on Granite Mountain for a few years and had some good friends on that crew.
1: My name is Deborah Fingston, and my son Andrew Ashcraft was on the Granite Mountain Interagency Hotshot Crew.
0: Thank you so much for all your thoughts, prayers, and comments any of you if anybody has any specific questions or wants more info or just to say hi please email us at pennyuniversity at protonmail.com we want to let you know that this is a very raw experience for us and sometimes our emotions and words might not be appropriate for little ears please be aware of that while listening
1: you know we've covered um, what occurred on june 28th 29th and june 30th and up until the crew died, and we're not going to really review all of that again. If you would like to get caught up, please listen to episodes one through five. They contain a lot of information, a lot of material. We certainly will refer to some of that information, but we're not going to cover it in great detail.
0: Right now we're going to be discussing important facts that we know and what we've we've experienced. In previous episodes, we tried our best to follow a tight timeline But from now on, we're gonna be working more with subject matter.
1: Not um, going to go through, um, we're not going to go through everything that the families went through. That's pretty personal and honestly, a whole other podcast. Um, This is a completely different podcast. We want to learn um, from this tragedy. We wanna learn what happened on that tragedy, um, what went well, and um, we just wanna make sure we cover it all. During this time, that um, serious accident investigation report was released. We talked about that. And um, I came home and talked with my family and we realized that any truth that was gonna be found or had was gonna be outside. We were gonna either do it ourselves or others were gonna do it. And honestly, I was at a loss. I didn't know even where to start. So I bought a purple little journal and I started writing things down. And I went to my computer And I googled email addresses for all of the wildland crews across the nation. And I sent an email to every soup and every captain. And I, and any hotshot group, anybody I knew, I sent out hundreds of emails. And I asked them that if they knew anything about what happened in Yarnelt, please email me back. If they could do it anonymously, any information that they had, please email it to me. And from those emails, um, I was contacted by a woman named Holly Neal. And she um, was a hotshot um, and was working with John McLean, um, finding information because John McLean knows that these investigations are a joke. And he wanted to know what happened in Yarnell. So Holly and John contacted us and asked if we could meet them and so uh, my husband Jerry and I scheduled a time for them to come to our home and they came into our home with another gentleman named Ted Putman and Ted Putman was the lead investigator for Storm King and he refused to sign off the investigation because he said it was so bad and so they came into our living room and we sat and we talked and um, they knew that this investigation was going to come out bad and was bad um, they had their own theories. They wanted to let us know that they wanted to work with us. We started working with them. Um, we even went out. Doug joined us. We even went out with John, Ted, and Holly, and her husband, and Jerry. Um, and we walked the trail. We walked the exact path that the crew walked. We um, sat yeah. with them. From their morning
0: briefing up to their lunch spot across the two tracks to the saddle, yep, the whole day's events.
1: Yes, and I got to sit where Andrew sat, and then John and Holly asked you to go over from their lunch spot to the two-track road. They timed you. Um, It it felt more like an investigation, like these people really cared than the other group from what we experienced. Yeah, they were
0: actually taking pictures of the work they had done and actually went to the spots on the fire where, they had been, where the crew had been working and what yep. they'd been doing. They
1: were GPS marking. Um, it was pretty, pretty amazing. And I will tell you, at this, at this time also, um, families were pulling together and filing a lawsuit with the st- against the state. And that's something that's really hard to do when you're mourning. Um, but we knew we had to fight. And Holly Neal helped us with a lot of good information. She, was, she just dove into this investigation um, head over heels, and she really cared. And it was Holly Neal. I acknowledge her, um, and I acknowledge her work. It was Holly who found the audio of Eric Marsh. Remember, the serious accident investigation report said there was a 33-minute gap and that nobody talked. There was no communication. And it was Holly Neal who was listening to the the aerial recordings. Yeah, they were doing a
0: a study on uh, retardant drops. Yes. And they were recording the...
1: The pilots. They were recording what was happening. I think they were just
0: recording their thoughts on how well the drops went, but those were coming across on the... uh, Other channels were leaking across this video that they had.
1: That's right. It was the Aerial Firefighting Use and Effectiveness Study is what it was called. And it was Holly that got these audios and she was cleaning it up. And she was the one that first discovered Eric Marsh's voice. And I remember that moment because, uh, well, she called me and she was taken back. She was really um, scared at first, I believe, and angry. And she's the one that discovered. And then it it just snowballed from there, so.
0: It seems like it's it's hard to say to believe that someone was scared to give you that kind of information, but it seemed like there was a lot of pressure.
1: Well, there keep, was a lot of to fear. To keep
0: firefighters quiet and not help out in this sort of thing. It seemed, like, it seemed like there was a lot of people feeling that pressure.
1: Well, they were putting gag orders on everybody. Yeah. Um, the head, the national head of the forest service, um, when he discovered that I sent out this email to everybody, he also sent out an email and told them not to communicate with me. Um, somebody forwarded it to me. And he said, you know, don't communicate with this woman. So it, it, it was pretty sad. So from that point, information started coming in, people started coming to us, and we just started gathering info.
0: Yeah, we had more audio evidence. of uh, This is that other, other one we're talking about where Eric is coming down, the, or, or someone is telling Eric that he needs to move his crew faster than down the mountain. It's so obviously somebody... In charge of that fire we don't know
1: that's right and it's who. A- you can
0: hear the voice but you they're not s- s- saying specifically who they are on the radio but they're telling Eric to move the crew faster yes so and it was at say,
1: 1604 so 404
0: yeah when they say they had no idea where Granite Mountain was that obviously somebody people on the fire knew where they were
1: right somebody did and I will tell you we will put a link to both of these audios um, on our um, site So you can go and listen to them also, but the one audio—what is what does that person say, Doug? Do you? I don't.
0: I don't remember specifically, but he says that he can see the crew and that they should move faster. But he's not the soup. Right. Something like that. Something along those lines.
1: Right. So, who would a division um, leader? be speaking to that would give orders you know i mean would it be the field op would it be ic commander would it be um the I mean who would be doing that ops
0: would probably be the first step above him but more than likely yeah it could be because they're saying i'm not the soup so it could be anybody just giving advice but someone obviously in a command sit in a command Position was telling them that they should move
1: faster. So you know what? I want to kind of throw out a challenge. Um, if when you anybody that hears us saying that, and anybody goes and listens to that audio, if you recognize that voice, send us an email at pennyuniversity@proton.mail. university um, I have my theories, um, and I know there are several that do. So um, we know that the the moment of silence. The 33 minutes has been blown out of the water. We have audio. The audio shows, proves that they knew the crew was coming down, proves that they knew where they were. Um, And then we have some other stuff that points to where the crew was. Um,
0: And just points to a bad investigation.
1: Absolutely. Point, well, (laughs) yes, to a completely bad situation. Um, There is a beautiful PowerPoint on John McLean's uh, book website. So if you type in John McLean, go to his book's website, hit the Yarnell Hill fire, then on the right side you'll see a button Holly Neal, um, N E I L L, and you'll go to her PowerPoint. Again, good work, Holly. She's the one that found the stobs from that go all the way down the hill, all the way to the ranch, and it's public um, information. You can go to her PowerPoint, and she has a beautiful PowerPoint that she has each stop a picture of it, and um, exactly where they were found. So an escape route was built, and it follows where my husband Jerry um, found the glove, which I believe was um, Anthony Rose's glove. It also follows the line of the marking tape that was found at the top of the two-track road. So I believe with all of these things, audio, stubs, gloves, marking tape, Eric saying, I'm at the ranch, somebody from in leadership saying, move faster. Everybody knew where Granite Mountain was. People are denying it now. So it's frustrating. Um, we did, I did receive a lot of anonymous emails at that time. And one that I thought was interesting All it said is, you'll never hear from me again, but ask where the safety officers were. And that started our conversation about safety officers. We were never told where the safety officers were, how one safety officer was told to stay in Phoenix, and how the other didn't show up on the fire until 4.15. A ton of emails that talked about how IC command was a complete mess, that there was no information going anywhere, that the radios were trashed. We even met with a crew member of Blue Ridge secretly, because remember, Blue Ridge was put under a huge gag order and no one was allowed to speak to us. Um, But this Blue Ridge crew member contacted us and came to um, Andrew and Julianne's home and met with us and reinforced. IC command didn't know what they were doing. It was complete chaos. Blue Ridge was trying to find something to do. Um, The radios weren't working. It it was just a complete mess, and so he reiterated all of it. And that's everything that we can. Everything we heard was that it was chaos, chaos, chaos.
0: I do want to make one point. You said everybody knew where Granite Mountain was, and I think.
1: Uh, okay, yeah, people clear that in up. Command did.
0: Yes. But, I mean, Blue Ridge tried to understand where they were and they communicated, but they were communicating about two different things. So there was definitely some confusion about where Granite Mountain was.
1: Absolutely. Thanks. But, thanks, yeah. Doug. Yeah. Uh, and what the, you said is correct. I said everybody, everybody I believe leadership yeah. in IC Command knew exactly where Granite Mountain was. Some of them for sure. Some of them for sure. Um, the aerial did not, aviation did not because they didn't have that good transition. Right. And there were crews on the fire, they did not. But IC Command, I believed it. So thanks Doug for catching my wrong.
0: I know for me, uh, hiking in Yarnell, I I have said it before but I didn't like being at the um the tragedy site where the, where the guys died. It seemed much more important to me to walk the, the path that the crew did every time we went down there and it was it was uh it was really we we every time we walked there we'd hop a fence in the neighborhood, get over that fence and you'd be right on Sesame Street, right where the crew we walk right past where the crew parked their buggies mm-hmm. up the trail. They took the two track they took up to get to the saddle. They they saw, made some radio communications on up to the line where they started their line their work for the day.
1: Well, you know, and we it it would kick my butt almost every time. Now, Granted, I know I'm old <laughs> compared <laughs> to you guys, but you know we are walking in, and what always caught my eye is this was moonscaped. This was clean of the vegetation that they hiked in and it's still an insane hike it's, yeah, it's just crazy it's,
0: it's, it's hard to imagine it because all we've seen it is moonscaped it's hard to imagine it with the brush on it and what right. it would actually looks like you really have to work at that but um, I mean, we went out there so many times and it I, I can't even count the times I went out there but it, f- it felt like every time I went out there I was in the right place something new a new Idea or a new thought about the fire, or a new thought about my friends on that fire, it would come to me, and it was. Uh, it just felt like I was in the right place doing the right thing every time.
1: Well, I know, I don't know how many times we would talk, and I would ask you, "I am I insane, Doug? Am I doing the right thing?" Or I would say to my husband, "I don't know if I'm doing the right thing," but every every time I asked that, something would come up, and it would be, "Yes, you are."
0: Yeah, it just felt that way. You know, obscure songs that. I'd only heard one time before. Working with that crew would come on the radio. You know, you never hear those songs on the radio. Right. But driving to that fire or coming back from it. Right. Simple things like that, but also just being at that fire, you, you would every time I felt like I got a new insight
1: in it. Well, and you know, it was kind of really healing too, because when we would drive out there, we would talk about the guys, we would talk about the crew. You would share stories about the crew that I didn't know. And I just love to hear, and I would constantly share stories about Andrew. Um, but we would also talk about what they knew, what they experienced, what you experienced with them, and and the crew you described, and the crew Andrew described to me, and the crew that others told me was not the crew that was being that gets painted, right you know, by the serious sex investigation report, or painted by some people that are out on the speaking circuit.
0: Right. I don't know, there's no way that they could possibly ever know right. how good those guys were or what, you know, you can't share that really. Right. I mean you can try but it's not.
1: It, it's hard. Yeah. So, um...
0: We did a lot, a lot of walking and hiking though up and down that hill. Oh we did,
1: <laughs> we did. I don't know how much, you know, and um, Doug was kind enough to always carry my water I was lucky enough not to have to carry water in my backpack (laughs) but you know so many times when we were doing that all I could imagine was the heat of that day um the fuels of that day that the backpacks that they were carrying you know I would think about Andrew carrying how much is a backpack weigh
0: 40 to 50 pounds probably
1: okay so here they are 120 degree heat um with a 40 to 45 pound or so backpack and then Andrew carrying the saw on top of it. You know, it's just insane to me. I was gasping for air with no backpack, no heat, you know, and here they are just, you know, another day at work. It's amazing. And I still, um, since you talked about the, um, what were those cans called, Doug? The SIG cans? The SIG cans, the SIG bottles. Being in all of their backpacks, that just almost haunts me a little bit because I think about here they, ca- they they carry these explosives in with them in their packs on that day.
0: Yeah. And we talked about it being on the crew, how we'd want to make sure we had all that away from us. But the crew at this on this fire was just left in a scenario where they had no time and no opportunity right. to get that far enough.
1: Right. Oh.
0: And yeah, as soon as those things vent, it's just spraying fuel everywhere.
1: So, not only are you trying to save yourself, you're being sprayed with gas. Uh, there's, there's gotta be a better way.
0: Yeah. Hiking out there so many times, I'm, uh, people that used to work on the crew when I did would would ask me if I'd take them out there because they knew I had to hike it and knew where all the the places that they would wanna see to were. So we, I took a lot of people out there uh,
1: a past, lot of alumni, past
0: alumni, okay. past yeah. uh, forest service people that had worked with the guys before. Um, you know, they they wanted to see what I wanted to see. They didn't want to see the deployment site. They wanted to see the entirety of the day. I guess.
1: Well, you know um, what just popped into my head with the deployment site, and you and I have talked about it. Um, you know, Jerry and I have talked about it. T.J. and I have talked about it. Julianne and I have talked about it. Um, whether to leave this deployment site alone, raw, natural, let it be, you know, kind of like Storm King just put some crosses down, Um, and it's now a a national park, and uh, I mean, a state park, because so many people were going there because it's fairly easy access if you uh, trespass, and a lot of people were going there, and a lot of families were concerned about it, being trampled and um, destroyed. So, but it at this time it was a very um, surreal place, and I, I still feel that when I go, it's very surreal. Um, but you're right. A lot of I don't see a lot of alumni there. I don't. A lot of alumni don't go in. Um, I know we went and cleaned up the site, and you came with us that time. But I know that that was pretty emotional and pretty hard. Um,
0: yeah, it never feels like there's any answers there yeah. for me or a reason. I mean, it's just a bad, bad spot, really.
1: Yeah, it's yucky. Yeah. agreed.
0: So during these hikes, we'd uh, I'd often take them to to where the uh, the crew had hiked before they left the two track to head down to the um, deployment site.
1: Why do you call it the two track? Why? What's the point of that?
0: Well, I just they're always in those investigations, and when I read about it in the in Different things. They're always saying that the crew left the black, and they always show that picture of them sitting in the black right above the fire, and it gives that impression at that the they, lunch spot. Right. That they just right. decided to hike and they knew the fire was right below them and they just decided to cut down into this bowl. The two track is much, at least in my mind, it puts that, you know, mile and a half away from that spot. Yep, Hiking along a ridge, they had multiple choices. Multiple escape routes, multiple safe ways to go.
1: No fire underneath
0: them. Yep. And then by the when when they got to that spot where they took off the two track into that bowl, they had the fire a mile further than where that investigation says it was. Right. Where it moved that ten minute, you know, that mile and and a ridge in between. Right. Right. They just had it was a it was a decision that limited their escape routes once they did it, but it was a, a. better decision than the pictures and the way they say it that they just left the black to hike down the so
1: spot. you like it said why they left the two track instead of why they left the black that it's more
0: yeah i, I just i guess that thought of just leaving the black and then they went down into that bowl just it really irritates me because mm-hmm. it just wasn't the way it went
1: right well that makes sense to me because you know whenever we would go to do their path, whenever we would follow their trail, whenever we would go to see where the buggies were or the dozer or um, even to the fatality site, we always ended up having to go in on Sesame Street. Um, I remember walking through burned out houses and over um, burned out uh, barbed wire um, and and through a couple washes, but it, we always ended up on Sesame Street. It seemed like every time we did it. And then when we started, Um, FOIA-ing, Freedom of Information Act, uh, interview notes, and getting receiving them, and again, getting emails, and then talking to other crew members anonymously, it led us to really focus on the Sesame Street area.
0: Yeah, as soon as we saw those interview notes, and you see air attacks saying two firefighters are lighting off in Division Z, and you realize that a lot of people thought Division Z was basically Sesame Street. Mm-hmm. It just puts you right, you know, right well, in that, I mean, it's just an obvious thing.
1: We made a reference in an earlier episode how we were standing on Sesame Street talking and you're, you have your back to Yarnell, literally. And I'm using the word as, you know, a, the straight definition. Literally, you look left- and you look right up to the fatality site. Yep,
0: you follow a bowl straight to them.
1: Straight to them.
0: And and it's the same if that same map that the S-A-I-R investigation had showed that fire jumping that that one mile, almost one mile jump in ten minutes and it puts that fire in that same exact spot, right on Sesame Street, right at the beginning of that draw up to their bowl.
1: Right. Um, and then, but you also um, went out there. You talked one time about trees. Could you explain that?
0: Well, there's not very many trees or, or very much vegetation that's high enough because the fire at, the, at that point, when it turned up that bowl, it was just, uh, it must have been a wall of fire because everything, there's lots of brush, you know, 10 foot high brush, but the fire was above that because you can't see any burn patterns on that. But there's a few trees. 30, 40 foot high trees right along there. Maybe there's three of them. And you can see a burn pattern on there that shows the fire coming from that Sesame Street area where we stopped and Mm
1: -hmm. looked
0: left and looked right Mm -hmm. up that bowl. It just Mm -hmm. lines up right from there, straight to the crew.
1: I remember you walking us out there. Um, I believe Jerry was with us at that time and we walked up and you said, look at this tree. And you had to explain to me burn patterns i didn't know
0: Yeah, and i'm not an expert either but i know the direction the fire is going on the back side yes on the opposite side from where the fire is coming from it'll curl up the other side and, and burn higher on the other side of that tree
1: right so again proof the fire came from sesame street right you have been listening to penny university a podcast with value we hope you are finding this presentation intriguing. If you would like to share
0: your two cents, please contact either Deborah or Doug at, at com. Thank you, and back to the podcast. I guess it was about uh, 10 or 11 months after the crew had died. I, we'd been hiking out there many times. Sesame Street had become a uh, key area where I was looking, looking at things and, and thinking about things, and... I was hiking along Sesame Street, imagining a burn there, Um, and I was—I just was looking along the along the side that would have been burnt, about ten feet off the two track there that they could have burned off. Which, well, it was the dozer-prepped Sesame Street, and I found a little piece. It was about three inches long, and it just looked to me like a burnt-up fusee. A these a uh, uh, ignitions tool that they use to light light off these burns. Right,
1: it's round. Yeah, yeah.
0: And I just, I, I uh, it was, just, it looked so much like it to me, and it just felt like true evidence. I had no idea what to do with it. You know? <laughs> I'm not an investigator, and I felt like there needed to be. I needed to call the FBI <laughs> to for them to see this. So I left it right where it was. I took pictures of it, and then I called Deborah. I called (laughs) the few other people that I, you know, just wanted to tell this to. And um, I had to leave it there for a night. And I was just so stressed out about it. Thinking of leaving it there, and I have just imagined that people were going to want to come. Like the investigators are going to want to hear this, I, and they're going to want to. They're know going to about
1: put this. caution tape yeah. around it, and yeah. You know.
0: Yeah, they're going to want to flag this off and and start looking.
1: And they could have cared less.
0: Nobody cared. <laughs> no,
1: <laughs> except I remember this family was freaking out. I don't yeah. know. We were freaking out about it.
0: So a couple, you know, the next day I went down there and put it in a glass jar. Still in safekeeping in my garage. And we
1: GPS marked it.
0: GPS marked it.
1: And I took a piece of it.
0: Yep. And from that moment on, we just really focused uh, looking at that area. Mm-hmm. I remember we brought metal detectors down there. We, we grid searched with a few people that wanted to grid mm-hmm. search with us. And we found other things, uh, white pieces that could have been the same kind of slag that could have come off that. Um, mm-hmm. It was just, it was frustrating though at the time too because you're, it's so much later. Yeah, know, It was a we, year later. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And I know we took that piece and I thought, what are we going to do with it? We've got to figure out what it is. But we didn't want to work with any lab in Arizona. You know, right. it was just crazy. So I started making phone calls and I found a lab in the Midwest and I, sent it to them, I didn't let them know what it was, I didn't say who I was, I didn't anything. Um, But I had to write my name down, but you know, who am I? And um, we get out there, and that lab called me, and they said, listen Mrs. Fingston, we know who you are. We Googled, we know what this is, and we want you to know you are dealing with one of the most corrupt departments in government. (laughs) And I remember getting that phone call And saying to my family, they just said this is one of the most corrupt departments in the government. You've got to be kidding me. This isn't the CIA. This isn't the FBI. (laughs) This is the Forest Service. These are the great forest rangers. You know, I mean, what are you you talking about? And this guy said, they are always covering their butts. And... um, We have the report. They couldn't fully identify exactly what it was, but they believe it was some type of hardwood. Yeah. Um, So
0: not the Fusee piece that I thought it was. I know,
1: so we were really disappointed. But we still have it. Who knows? Maybe now we should send it to a lab. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe they were bought off. Who knows?
0: Well, during that that time also, uh, we had an arson dog that was able to come out and search that same area. And this was amazing. That arson dog hit on the spot where the piece was found. And
1: you didn't tell them. Explain no. that whole thing. I mean...
0: I mean, it was just a... Never met the dog before. Never met the handler before. Never
1: showed them where he you was found a, anything. a yeah, law
0: enforcement officer that was willing to come out and bring his dog. According to him, expert dog solved lots of cases for him all over. All over. Um, and I was there with some alumni that were also there with us, and we were just amazed. That dog hit exactly there, and he hit along that area in places that you would think people would put drip torch fuel for a burn.
1: Okay, so it was just like what? Bop, yeah. Bop, 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 bop. I think bop, there was like five or like six
0: street. five or six areas right along there. Okay, so... But there wasn't anything there that we could see. It was, it, right. He was saying he thought it could be um, accelerants, so a drip torch fuel or something like that, that the dog was...
1: Okay, so Sesame Street, where right down at the end of the chute of the tragedy we have an arson dog that hits yeah. that there has been accelerant placed in these multiple locations yeah, it was at least
0: five maybe seven spots right. along there
1: and what what comes of that you and i are talking about it on a podcast yeah. right it's not in the serious accident investigation report that wasn't even in adosh um that that's not anywhere It's you and I talking about it, Doug. And I would assume the other people that were out on Sesame Street that day, but. Right. Right?
0: Yeah, and it's just that same question, you know. Why, what if this had been done after the fire, not a year later? Right. What could could have been learned? What could have been done?
1: What could have happened? You know, and at the same time where all of this is going on, we're getting videos sent, we're getting photographs of us sent, information on smoke columns, um, prior to the fire of hitting Yarnell, um, several pictures that so... There's a column of smoke coming from this area. Yeah. Um, there was
0: nothing we could really we could no. really tell anything from, them, but they were saying this is what they thought they were seeing.
1: The, um, the, rumors were running crazy. They right. were running everywhere. Um, attorneys were calling, and one evening, it was after dinner, it was dark, um, there was a phone call from a local attorney here in Prescott, and she called me up and... Um, She said, Deborah, I need to talk to you for a moment. And I said, okay. And she said, I want you to know that I was contacted by an older man who lives out in Yarnell who listened to um, radio um, bands, you know, the people that listen. Ham radio. radio, you know, Mm -hmm. and they listen to tragedies. And they had called her and told her that they had heard a voice that said, "Um, Andrew Ashcraft with Granite Mountain, we need help. Now, first of all, Andrew was a Sawyer. He's too busy, right. you know? He would not have been one on the radio. But I sat there thinking, and she said, you know, so I just felt I had to share it. I sat there thinking, what do I do with this? And, and that's the type of information we were getting. We had to sift through yeah. this bizarre information, and then we had some crazy wacko information, then we had some really rock solid good information, at the same time as that we're mourning our friends, that we're going through all these memorials, that we're going through a lawsuit, that we're going, you know, this was a really hectic time. It was it was pretty nutty. Yeah. Um, but yet, for me, and my husband, Jerry, who came with me as many times as he could, you came out as many times as you could, and we all said that when we were out in Yarnell, walking in Yarnell, that that was kind of the, um, Quiet, clear as time. We were away from media. We were away from voices. We were away from the city and all of that stuff. We were away from the state. We were away from feds. Um, What I often refer to as the Granite Mountain Machine. Yeah. It was just us trying to find the answer for the guys.
0: Yeah, and like you said, it was the clearest at that point because like you said there were so many rumors and so many so much things to sift through and I people tell you those kind of communications and and i mean there was so much going on
1: oh the stories are just you know we'll talk about it and people say you got to be kidding me and i'm like no no yeah. and you know something again that just came to mind you know when i'm talking about that is how at one point I had firefighters walk up to me and say, you need to stop. You need to stop. You're crazy. The guys were heroes and you're gonna tarnish them. It's like, no, I'm not. I had one firefighter go to Julianne, Andrew's widow, my beautiful daughter-in-law, and say, your mother-in-law's insane and you should tell her to be quiet, you know? And firefighters were being threatened. Their jobs were being threatened. We've, we teasingly refer to you as Teflon Doug because you seem to just slip through all of the threats.
0: <laughs> well, I've never, I've never had anything said to me, but uh, I've, I've heard it from other people. But, yeah, uh, uh,
1: that's how we first lost our very first liaison that was, was assigned to our family is her husband was a firefighter and he was told, you get them in line. You tell them to shut up. You tell them to quit the investigation and she was scared to be with us anymore, that it was getting overwhelming. And it was, well, that's okay, we've got Teflon dug. So, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a crazy time, crazy time.
0: So we're still li- listening and we're still getting information that, uh, about this fire. Uh, it still comes from us. Um, this is just an ex- excerpt from a video that was being taken at the fire, so it was just kind of conversations between uh, three firefighters uh, at Yarnell. It's uh, Blue Ridge, and two other firefighters.
1: So, and this was an audio that we're listening to from a video. Right. The audio from a video, if that makes sense. And, yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: And so the Blue Ridge uh, captain is coming and he says, "Hey there, guy," and uh, the firefighter, "What time is it? It's dark or what?" So the fire's banking down. It's starting to get smoky and getting dark.
1: Well, the t- yeah. The timestamp says 4:36. Yep.
0: Yeah. And so the Blue Ridge says, "It is dark up here." And then the firefighter comes back. How are you guys doing? And Blue Ridge says, "Fucking making sure idiots aren't burning themselves out. God damn. Just another example. Yep, this is my insight. Not yeah. <laughs> this is another example of uh, some some someone else on this fire saying, you know, there's a possibility burnouts were happening.
1: Right. You and know? the the firefighter responds with, "We figure you guys um, were bringing up the rear. You know. So here's Blue Ridge." We, we just, I just heard this audio. This is something new to me. And we're what, five years yeah. in? Um, how Blue Ridge is saying, you know, it is getting dark. And hey, Blue Ridge, what are you doing? We're, we're trying to stop idiots from burning out. And remember, Blue Ridge was coming out of Sesame Street.
0: Yeah.
1: Right? So this investigation should have been done. 2013, appropriately.
0: Yeah. So others at this time were also investigating, and, and a lot of times it felt like I, I, they were blaming the crew, or that it's still that way, blaming Granite Mountain for some of these issues. Not saying it specifically, um, but just right. listing the problems that, of where they ended up and, and other things within the fire. But
1: uh, Well, I've listened to the lead investigator who occasionally is out on the speaking circuit, and he... Doesn't directly say, Granite Mountain, but he get, he insinuates, he points to, and I, I just it infuriates me every time I see it. And there are other firefighters that truly blame the crew. I I have come face to face and argued with them.
0: Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, but there's you know, there's so many firefighters out there. There's going to be differences in opinion, but uh, it just doesn't seem like a true. People don't have a true idea of what went on out there because mm-hmm. of this bad investigation. Mm-hmm.
1: But yet on the good investigations or on the ADOSH investigation, it mentions that tight circle. And what does that what what is what did they mean by that tight circle?
0: I think they were talking about the deployment site where they were found and just how hard it would be for a crew to maintain that leadership up at that point. You know, if if the fire was getting that crazy to have that group of guys stay together, spoke to some kind of connection or, some you know, leadership or...
1: Professionalism. Professionalism,
0: something within that crew that they, they, they stuck together.
1: Well, and you and I, you know, we know the certifications that they carried. You sat through education with them. You know, you knew the education, but instead of blaming the crew... Let's look at what the crew did. But you have to have an appropriate investigation to look at the crew unless you want to be like us and become obsessed, right? (laughs) Um, You know, one of the sad points of this fire is that there has been no change. Nothing. Nothing has changed. The death of 19 men and we have... You know, first, I guess you have to have a a correct investigation report to do correct change that you can learn from it.
0: Yeah, if your investigation report just says, "Oh, what a tragedy!" They were they were quiet for thirty minutes. Everybody did their job, and then this happened. You know, whoop!
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, But if you look at previous fires, if you look at the Griffith Observatory fire. You know, back then, wildland crews wore Levi jeans and cotton shirts, white cotton shirts. And then after that fire, they realized that's inappropriate clothing. And so they redesigned their clothing to what they wear. Um, the Big Burn, everybody knows what's the great tool that came out of the Big Burn? The Pulaski. Um, and that's just to mention a couple of things. Every tragedy, something has changed. The 10 and 18s came from tragedy. But what has come from the Arnell Hill tragedy?
0: Well, if there's no investigation or no good investigation, how, what, why would they change anything?
1: Right. So nothing except two people on a podcast. I guess that's feels it. feels that way sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: In our next episode, we're going to talk about Granite Mountain. Why did they exist? Um, what was their history?
1: It'll be episode seven, which is super hard to believe. And we'll be joined at that time with Daryl Willis. And Daryl Willis was the fire chief for the city of Prescott at that time. Um, He's going to share with us the true reason um, why Granite Mountain was created and the exact work that they did.
0: It's going to be nice to hear from him, unless he gets called out on a wildland fire. He still works uh, doing that.
1: Yeah, he's still a wildland firefighter. So please join us for Episode 7 to learn about Granite Mountain, the crew. And, oh, by the way, hey, a big shout-out to Newfoundland. Um, Thank you guys for listening, and that's amazing to me. Shout-out, Newfoundland. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to Penny University's presentation, Our Investigation, Our Truth. Please join us again for the next episode in the scripting series. We hope you find us a podcast with value. Until next episode, be strong, wise, and safe.